1: Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. Today, we're discussing the CFL going full steam ahead on expansion efforts.
0: The first edition of Three Down Nation's 2023 CFL Mock Draft. A Wigapig store taking a
1: shot at the Saskatchewan Rough Raggers. Two players with Canadian ties making bank in NFL free agency and the passing of legendary
0: CFL and NFL coach Bud Grant. But first, the Montreal Alouettes have officially been sold to local billionaire Pierre-Carle Pelladeau. The 61-year-old tried unsuccessfully to buy the Montreal Canadiens in 2009 and has been unsuccessful since in his attempt to bring an NHL team to Quebec City. He also briefly served as the leader of the Separatist Party Quebecois from 2015 to 2016. Pelado spoke at a lengthy introductory press conference and made it clear that he bought the Alouettes for the value it brings to the community doesn't appear concerned with trying to turn a profit. What are your thoughts on his purchase of the franchise? I had some skepticism
2: because of Pelado's history, and I was very intrigued to see what he would be like in front of the media at the introductory press conference. And to me, he said... All the right things. You never want to see a CFL owner stand in front of the crowd and start talking about profits or revenue because then you know they're not going to be in it long term. Of course, Pierre Carl Pelado wants to make revenue. He wants to make the Alouettes a profitable franchise, but he seems to have his feet on the ground and understanding that that's a long term play, that this is going to take significant invest- investment. And he understands that this is. A move for the community it's a move of civic pride he talked about being a proud Montrealer that was music to my ears in terms of putting my mind at ease about the future of the Alouettes franchise when you have a deep pocketed owner who seems at least publicly to understand what owning a CFL franchise is all about the one sort of red flag that got thrown up in this press conference though was when he was discussing TV broadcast rights and his relationship with Bell Media, which, of course, owns the CFL's official broadcaster, TSN, and their French-language affiliate, RDS. This is a very contentious relationship between Pelot's company and Bell. On a number of fronts, he talked about how competition is great and how Bell now knows what they're capable of. It's clear that... There is going to be a little bit of friction there going forward, and Peloto may indeed be thinking long-term about taking a run at some French-language broadcast rights for the CFL, which has traditionally not been something the league has done and separated it from the rest. So this is going to be a very intriguing dynamic going forward in terms of one of the CFL's newest owners, most powerful owners, in terms of how much money he has behind him being in conflict with the league's most important financial partner.
1: I don't think that Pelado's broadcast wants potentially are a red flag. If anything, this could be very beneficial for the CFL. And guys, we see it all the time on the site. When we write about anything that has to do with TSN, there are a lot of fans out there that feel like, it could actually be more beneficial for the league if there were games on multiple networks. Now, I need to preface that by saying TSN has done a remarkable job. They pay in and around $50 million for those exclusive broadcast rights currently to broadcast all of the CFL preseason games if they wanted to, the regular season games, playoffs, and of course the Grey Cup. So TSN has certainly been a great partner for the CFL in terms of the money that the league is deriving from that broadcast partnership. All that to say, though, if there were games on multiple networks, which I'm sure Pelado is angling for, and for the uninitiated, TVA Sports has a connection to Rogers, which, of course, of course, owns Sportsnet. When I was on the Venier Cup broadcast for Sportsnet, the rights were with TVA Sports, and TVA Sports still has the rights for the Vanier Cup, which has made it tricky for TSN to want to enter that fray and potentially broadcast the Vanier Cup because of that lack of synergy in terms of the parent companies there. So I really think that in actuality, Pelado talking about competition and pumping out his chest and saying that he was happy about taking business away from Bell could be an overall net positive for the CFL. I love that he was out front about this and didn't hide from those types of questions. Whereas time and time again, Randy Ambrose gets asked questions and he doesn't even answer them. He paints this glorious picture of the greatest sports league in the world. That is the CFL and boys, we do love it, but we know from a revenue standpoint, it is not anywhere close to some of the other major sports leagues in north america namely one of the ones that they compete with whether they want to admit it or not the nfl so i think pelado wanting to change up how the broadcast rights are divvied up could be great it would create competition in the broadcast realm and you would also have more people potentially on network television or streaming platforms Talking about the CFL, which is what is much needed. And I think that is the other piece that Pelido himself brings to the equation with the Alouettes. He is well known in Quebec. Dare I say a celebrity there. People follow his every move. And just him owning the team is going to put the Alouettes name out there more than a different group would have.
0: Well, let's talk about this, too. We talked a little bit about the Videotron Center, which is the incredible, almost 20,000-seat arena that was built in Quebec City. We touched on the podcast a little bit last week. I did some more reading, boys. We said last week that Pierre Carapelado built this arena. That could not have been less accurate. This stadium was built using 50% funds from the city and 50% funds from the province. And the reason I mention that is because One thing the Alouettes need right now is a proper training facility. One could argue they even need a new stadium. Olympic Stadium is too big and it's run down and Molson Stadium on McGill University. I've been to a live game there. I thought the location was spectacular, but I know there are complaints about the quality of the amenities that are sorely lacking in certain areas. And it is also difficult to get to for some people. So if the Alouettes need a new building, who better to own the team than someone who in the recent history of that province has leveraged his fame and his money and his influence into a beautiful new stadium? And I know that there's lots of people in this country, generally speaking, who oppose the use of government funds for building sports stadiums that are lavish and, and incredible. And look, I 100% get that. I'm not here to talk about whether that is a good or a bad thing. What I am saying is... Is Pierre Caro Peladeau has successfully leveraged all of those things in recent memory into a brand new beautiful arena that is servicing the Quebec City community with the Quebec Ramparts, and obviously the goal, of course, was to get an NHL team there that has not materialized. But if if anybody right was going to own this team, you you'd say on your wish list, we want local, we want rich, and we mm-hmm. want somebody who could potentially get a building. Check 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 and. Obviously, Peladeau. I watched the whole press conference. I only understood about a third of it. I know my elementary school French teachers would have been remarkably disappointed at how little (laughs) of the French language aspect I understood. But I was very impressed with Peladeau. I know he's media savvy. He used to be married to a a high-up-ranking media uh, individual. And he's obviously not camera shy. He clearly likes the sound of his own voice, which isn't necessarily a bad thing when you're looking for a gregarious, outspoken person to grab a hold of this this ship that has been flailing in the middle of the ocean for a decade now, that is the Montreal Alouettes. Somebody needed to step up, put their hands on the wheel, gain control, and put this ship on the right track. And so far, I'm a big fan of it. And to touch on the media stuff that you guys are talking about, I could not agree more. Pelado said it himself, competition will make everybody better and he did say that they'd taken 50 percent of the business away from bell i know bell has disputed that at least in its own claims i believe they they recently said they have a 75 percent market share in quebec but regardless i don't care about the particular numbers what i care about is everybody getting better in their coverage and broadcasting of canadian football be it the cfl u sports what have you to me this is a positive move
1: on that whole NHL deal, and I want to jump in here real quick just before JC goes, Peladeau was the spearhead to get that arena built, the Videotron Center. So, yes, his funds didn't go into it. Hodge correctly pointed that out. But without his influence, that arena isn't there. And. From what I was told by some hockey people is that the reason the Quebec Nordiques or that there is not a team that is in Quebec City playing in the NHL more has to do with Gary Bettman focusing on wanting teams in the National Hockey League. Now, those same NHL people have said, well, you look at the Arizona Coyotes. Why would Bettman want that mess there? And you have this beautiful, empty facility in Quebec City with likely a rabid fan base there being played in by a QMJHL team. So some of that politics, I think, came into play as to why Peladeau has, to this point, been unsuccessful in getting an NHL team in Quebec City. But he was certainly a major factor in getting that stadium built. It's much different, a billionaire trying to get money, especially with the connections that he has in politics there in Quebec Put into a facility for a potential NHL team that it would be some Joe Schmo, I don't know how to say that in French, but off the street. And on the note of (laughs) public (laughs) (laughs) public funds being used for sports facilities, Laval University built a brand new sports complex. And their athletic center is immaculate. Obviously, the stadium there for football is great at Peps. They have an indoor facility right beside it. But all of the other sports have great facilities there that play at a collegiate level at Laval University. And from what I was told, a lot of, if not all of that money, was public money. So Quebec, as a province, invests in sport. They invest in football, particularly for our focuses. And that's shown by the quality of CGET football out there. And then the university teams that are there, namely Laval and the University of Montreal, and also the amount of talent that has gone from Quebec into the NFL, Laurent Duvernay Tardif being one of them, Anthony Eau Claire, a Laval graduate being another. So Quebec invests in sports and as Hodge mentioned whatever people out there think of that investment they can have their own opinions about it but it's clear that's what Quebec does and Pelado being the spearhead here could help reinvigorate the Alouettes franchise with a practice facility or potentially a retrofit or a new stadium for the Owls to play
0: and I got two quick things on that first as a Winnipegger, I know a lot about Gary Bettman not wanting to put NHL teams in <laughs> Canada, okay? I know full well. But secondly, I'll say this. I saw some speculation online criticizing this move, saying, oh, well, Pierre-Carl Péladeau is just buying the Alouettes to show the NHL that he can own a team. To that I say, Great! That sounds fantastic. You're telling me that Pelado is going to spend the next like three to five seasons being the greatest owner ever in an attempt to lure? It doesn't matter if he dumps the Alouettes after that. If the Alouettes can get three to five years of just great quality ownership, then they're going to be in a much better place than they have been arguably ever. So to me, I don't care if Pelado sees this as a stepping stone. To me, it means the Alouettes are going to be treated like an absolute A-plus first-rate franchise, and we know that quality ownership not only wins on the field, but off the field. So to me, that is also not a negative. In fact, I think it is a huge positive for the Alouettes, if that is in fact pelado's plan.
2: And the one thing I do want to jump in with here, and to touch on Dunk's point, that facility at Laval came about because of another wealthy Quebecois businessman pushing it forward in Mr. Tonge there, who is such a power broker in terms of the Laval Rouge or and what they've become in the province of Quebec. You wonder if Pelletot can become that on the professional side, which the Alouettes have never really had and the one thing I'll add to your checklist from earlier, Hodge, when you're going down the list of all the things that you want to see in a new owner and how Pierre-Carl Pelado hits on them, the last one, the media connections. And I don't think we can hammer this down enough. We've talked about it on the broadcast side, but simply from a publicity side, Pierre-Carl Pelado, even though he's keeping Quebec Corps and his company sort of at arm's length, from the Alouettes at this stage, right? It's a personal asset. There is no doubt that all of his companies are going to be focused on trying to elevate his personal asset as well. And what that means is more coverage for the Alouettes on TVA sports, more coverage, coverage for the Alouettes in print journalism, in his Francophone papers, all things that are desperately needed. All of a sudden there is focus going to be placed on the Alouettes that wasn't there before. And more people are going to see it. That means more butts in seats and a better franchise down the line.
1: Randy Ambrosie was in Winnipeg, Hodges neck of the woods on Tuesday to formally announce the 112th great cup being played at IG field in November 2025 hodge you reported the goodies from the presser including what the commissioner said about the league turning its focus to expansion do you think the cfl is going to make substantial tangible headway on adding a 10th team in the coming months
0: i mean my short answer is no i think the cfl is right to make this their next focus Ambrosi talked about how the last six weeks have been 100% focused on the Alouette sale that is now done. He talked about how obviously getting the great cup awarded. And by the way, the CFL is making a concerted effort to award great cups earlier. It used to be that great cups were announced around 18 months out. They've now added a year to that. I asked if we're going to get an announcement about 2026 sometime soon. And Ambrosia said, no, probably about this time next year. We'll learn where the 2026 great cup is. By the way, if I was a betting man, I put my money on Montreal because they haven't had it in the longest. They haven't had it since 2008. It's been almost 20 years. If they get it in 2026 and who knows, maybe there'll even, this is very wishful thinking, but maybe there'll even be a a facility there that they could use for that. A new one that they could use for that. Pelado can build it that quick. Hey, if Pelado can, can build a 20,000 seat arena, in Quebec City in four years, who's to say what he could do with modern technology in Montreal in three years? But we'll see. Anyways, they, I mean, and obviously they could host it at the Big O as long as they throw some lipstick on it and, you know, put some duct tape around the girders that are that are collapsing and and, and all that. But anyways, side point, getting back to the question, which is Halifax. This is something the CFL has been tacitly working towards, it would appear, for 40 years and for all the success that, you know, the economic reports saying you know, a oh, $12 million impact in 2022 for Touchdown Atlantic in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, where you both were. The first Touchdown Atlantic was in 2005, guys. Like if, if a child was born when the first Touchdown Atlantic took place, they're graduating high school this year. Like this is not a new phenomenon. This is not a new. This is something that the CFL has peddled with for far too long. It's time. To take action. Now, you need an owner. You need a stadium. They've had people interested in becoming the new owners of this team. What they do not have is a stadium. They've since pivoted to a what what Randy Ambrosi calls a temporary permanent solution where an existing stadium is is refurbished and upgraded and expanded and potentially right could serve as a permanent facility in the future or a better, more permanent solution. Could be fixed in the long term. But to me, this is something that is a huge priority for the CFL. There's a million positive reasons I listed in my column today for the league to expand. And honestly, I'm almost of the opinion at this point that the league's power brokers, and by that I mean the existing teams with their governors and the league office itself, should consider owning this thing, at least for the start, right? We've seen upstart leagues, albeit not terribly successful ones down south use that business model where the league owns all the teams with the long-term plan of selling them off and getting their investment back. Who's to say that the league's nine teams and the league itself could, and obviously there'd be losses early, but you've got nine more regular season games. You've got far more tickets. Yes, you've got more expenses, but you're also garnering a lot more revenue from having a a 10th team. And also boys, you've got a balanced schedule which doesn't have these awkward buys that nobody likes randomly dispersed throughout the year. So to me, if the CFL is serious about this and growing all those revenues that could be had out East, they need to make this happen. They need to make it happen quickly. And in my opinion, they should be ready to even go as far as to own it. them. This is my opinion, own it themselves and look to secure a long-term owner in the long-term.
2: It's absolutely crucial for the future of the league to add a 10th team. And we can't emphasize that enough. In my mind, it's truly the only way to see substantial revenue growth within Canada. As much as we can improve things here and there and make different franchises better and, and more fiscally responsible, adding another team is really the only way to tap into some of these markets that haven't been exploited in Canada yet. That's the reality. that's why the league is focused on it as well as for some of the scheduling things that Hodge just touched on. I think this shift in mindset from the CFL from a permanent you know professional stadium to more of a temporary permanent setup is significant and I think it it shows just how invested they are in making this happen sooner or rather than Lager. Now, I have some concerns about that setup. A, where it's being proposed currently at St. Mary's University. We were there last year. I didn't necessarily see a space that would accommodate the type of stadium I envisioned. We'll see how it looks for this year's Touchdown Atlantic. I'm intrigued to see that. But also, this is something that's been done in the past in Halifax and it's been done successfully to an extent but the Halifax Wanderers the Canadian Premier League team their soccer team there in Halifax has been wildly successful especially when compared to other soccer clubs in Canada particularly at that CPL level right they get 15,000 fans out to a level of soccer that is not very high by international standards it's very well supported which makes you think positively about what a CFL team could do in that city but they operate out of one of those temporary permanent facilities in the Wanderer grounds. They've been pushing to get a better facility built there for this team because of the success they've shown. And they've gotten this about the same response that the CFL has gotten in terms of a, a local government that's unwilling to put in the money to do it. So my fear from the CFL perspective is you go in with this idea of a temporary permanent facility, you build something that... Can hold you for a little while, but that isn't necessarily up to the standards you want to have long term. You're in, you're invested in the market, you may even have success. What happens down the line if you have a successful franchise and all of a sudden the city of Halifax come, you go to the city of Halifax asking for money to build that permanent stadium that you've earned and they still say no? What happens then? Because this temporary permanent facility has a shelf life, right? You can't use it indefinitely. At some point, you need a professional caliber stadium with professional caliber facilities around it for the players, for the fans. And that's my fear is that you won't get that at any stage.
1: I've got a solution for you, JC. Just like what's going on in Hamilton with the Tiger Cats and Forge FC, the Halifax Wanderers, and let's say in this case, for fun, the Atlantic Schooners, come together and build a stadium because more home dates is going to benefit however that dynamic comes together you can't have a CFL specific stadium with just regular season home dates and of course you can have one preseason game and maybe a playoff game you have to have more dates in there than that I think that would be the way that if the municipality of Halifax isn't going to give you a lot of money or any money then you need to talk to the owners of the Halifax Wanderers and get an idea of what their appetite is for a stadium that would be multi-purpose and that's what Mayor Mike Savage told me back in the summer JC when you and I were in Halifax that CFL specific stadium will not happen it needs to be a multi-use facility for the Halifax government to consider putting money into it and it wasn't too long ago that there was a vote that passed in Halifax to give the CFL conditionally, or the Atlanta schooners, I should say, $20 million towards a stadium. Like that was one major step that had gone through pre-pandemic. Now it's much different in this, I guess we'll call it post-pandemic world that we're living in with what governments have had to deal with financially. But I think there is an avenue there. And to me, it's very easy. You play at St. Mary's University, You put as many seats in there as you can, you create the demand, you create the excitement, you show the sustained economic impact in that city, and then your case is stronger to go to the Halifax government. Is it risky? Yes. But some of the things that these CFL owners have done, let's say, namely Bob Young investing his money in the Tiger Cats when they hadn't turned a profit in a long time and making them a sustainable business entity, was something that he wanted to do because he was local, but also from a business perspective, he lost money and there was some risk there. He was one of the main backers behind the Canadian Premier League. And of course, for Jeff C., the team that he owns in Hamilton in that same stadium as Tim Hortons Field was risky to start up that league. There was no market share out there or there was no proposal that was showing you, well, if you put this league together, Soccer fans will come. So there's going to be some risk. And as Hodge alluded to, the first TD Atlantic game was played in 2005. At some point, we're either going to poop or get off the pot, hopefully, with the <laughs> CFL. Let's either stop talking about it or go and have some action with it. Now, I understand that that's going to cost the CFL a lot of upfront money. But there's people around the league that feel like the expansion talk at times is a nice diversion for the CFL office to point to and get fans and media to talk about expansion when really they should be looking at some of the other issues with the league. So at some point here, I hope that the league can find a way with this temporary permanent setup at st mary's university where they already play football and it's great it's close to downtown it would be accessible you could ideally get the students out there to the game get a younger audience engaged in it and in this content world more games equals more money and you can fix up the schedule you can move it up as Ambrosie has talked about they would like the gray cup to be earlier in November. There are so many reasons why this should happen. And I really like Hodges idea. Of course, it's an opinion, but of the league and its stakeholders coming together to get this thing off the ground, because I think in the long run, it could be beneficial, risky. Yes. And are we talking about other people's money? Yes. But either do it or stop talking about it. The Atlantic Schooner is brought to you by genius sports,
2: right boys? Hey,
0: (laughs) heck, make make genius uh, a small share minority owner, But but I'll say this, right? There's speculation that even in a really bad year, a CFL team loses ten million dollars. So if you have ten partners, nine teams plus the league itself, and you want to float this thing for three years, you're just asking each team for three million bucks. That's pocket change for the community teams. And it's honestly pocket change for a lot of the private teams. Legendary CFL and NFL head coach Bud Grant passed away this past week at the age of 95. The native of Superior, Wisconsin won an NBA title with the Minneapolis Lakers and was then a first round pick in the 1950 NFL draft. He played two seasons with the Philadelphia Eagles on both sides of the ball before heading north to play for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. In 1957, he became the youngest head coach in league history at 29 and led the club to an era of dominance. Posting a 102, 56 and 2 record with six Great Cup appearances with four wins. He then became the head coach of the Minnesota Vikings in nineteen sixty-seven and held that role for eighteen years, going 158, 96, and 5 with four Super Bowl appearances. JC, how will you remember Grant?
2: As one of the greatest all around sporting figures of all time. Like You just listed off the resume. As a player alone, they simply don't make people like Bud Grant. You're talking about a guy who played professionally in the NBA. That was not a a misquote by Hodge there. He played in the NBA, won a championship in professional basketball before going to the NFL. He led the Eagles in sacks one year. He was second in the NFL in receiving the next. Then he comes up to Canada where he's a three-time all-star as a receiver, right? This guy was elite as a player. And then to be able to take over a professional club at 29 years of age, just take a minute and think about that. The, the amount of pressure, the amount of things you have to deal with coaching guys, many of whom you played with many of whom who are older than you. I mean, I am, 25 going on 26 right now, boys, and I'm taking over as head coach of a high school team. And I can tell you the challenges involved in that at this young of an age. Now imagine being just three years older and taking over a professional club. That is mind-boggling to me, and he did it. And within his second season, he was going and winning a Grey Cup, winning back-to-back Grey Cups, in fact. We will never see another player or coach like Bud Grant, he was simply a class of his own.
1: An absolute legend, and according to my research, which isn't much, he's got to be the only person ever to win an NBA title and a Grey Cup. Like That is unbelievable to even think that that's possible regardless of when he accomplished it. He is a total throwback going back to the era of football where guys in large part – played both ways, and in this case, played multiple sports. Dare I say he was of the like of Bo Jackson or Deion Sanders before those modern-day stars were able to play multiple pro sports. He is an unbelievable story, and it is so great to have Bud Grant tied to the history of the CFL.
0: It was a devastating day when when he passed and and I'm saying that as someone who did not know Bud Grant personally obviously his tenure Winnipeg was well before my time it was before my parents time uh, before at least they could remember what was going on with the team but for whatever reason Bud Grant at that cagey age of 95 with his hunting background and you know the the toughness I'll never forget it was probably about five years ago the Vikings had their last outdoor playoff game And Bud Grant was invited out to do the coin toss. It was like minus 15 degrees. And he walked out to midfield sleeveless, like in a golf (laughs) shirt. He was, I think, 91 at the time. Like an unbelievable image. And it it sounds silly to say, boys, because obviously life happens. But there was, I guess, just a part of me that that assumed Bud Grant was going to live forever. Because if ever, ever there was a person who could live forever, it would be Bud Grant. So Bud Grant... We miss you. Condolences to your friends, your family. Thank you for spending 95 years with us and and all that you contributed to the game on the north and south parts of the border.
2: Two names Canadian football fans are familiar with. Hit big in NFL free agency as defensive lineman David Aguimera, the pride of the University of Manitoba, signed a three year, $35 million contract with the Atlanta Falcons and Former Calgary Stampede linebacker Alex Singleton re-signed with the Denver Broncos on a three-year deal worth $18 million. What did you make of those two contracts, Doug?
1: Both great stories in their own right. David Onyemata did not start playing football until he got to the University of Manitoba. Now he is a multi-millionaire after picking up the sport due to the patience of Brian Doby, the head coach of the Bisons, and that coaching staff. There, he is repped by Tom Brady's agent, and he saw that talent in him, and I think that really helped him get boosted up the draft board to be taken in the later rounds of the NFL draft by the New Orleans Saints. Now he goes to a division rival and gets paid. I think what is worth is he's a real disruptive presence in the middle of the defensive line, and you look at Alex Singleton, a guy who – Got a crack at the NFL coming out of the University of Montana, but didn't stick. Finds out that he has Canadian status, goes into the draft, somehow falls to, I believe it was the sixth overall pick to the Calgary Stampeders. I think there was a little bit of gamesmanship going on there from John Hoffnagel putting out some smoke screens about him maybe getting another shot in the NFL with the New England Patriots. That didn't happen. Plays exceptionally well for the Peters. Probably should have started there from day one, but it took around until mid-season in his rookie year. Wins multiple awards, including the league's most outstanding defensive player award. Goes to Philadelphia and is an absolute tackling machine, but doesn't get rewarded with a contract that I felt like was requisite with what he had done. Then he takes what I felt like was... A discounted deal to go to Denver proves himself to John Elway and the Broncos and gets a legitimate deal from the Broncos that I believe pays him what he's worth and then some. Singleton gets nine million dollars guaranteed. Of course, that value, as JC mentioned, is worth up to 18 million. That's life-changing money for Singleton, and I think he deserves it because he continued to stay at it. And this is an example of when some people say, oh, well, that guy will never get a shot in the NFL or this guy will never get a shot in the NFL, not just Singleton, but Anyamata as well, of people staying at it. I mean, McLeod Bethel-Thompson probably has his hand up saying, yeah, I'm in that group. I'm going to stay at it. His age, I think, is working against him. But who are we to have an opinion against these guys who believe in themselves enough to keep that dream alive? Because not all of them are going to get this kind of life-changing money But the second that you don't believe that that's possible, how is an NFL team going to believe in your abilities? And you'll never probably get to the level that these two have of financial wealth and their standing in the NFL.
0: Yeah. The guaranteed money is what matters to me, right? This is an NFL contract, NFL contracts like CFL contracts, aren't even worth the paper they're written on unless there is that guaranteed money included on Yamada has, $24.5 $24.5 million guaranteed on his extension. Singleton has $9 million. Now, for context, Anya Mata made $30 million over a seven-year run with the New Orleans Saints, which means at minimum, his NFL earnings will be $54.5 million. Not bad for a player who didn't start playing football until 2011 at the University of Manitoba. And then Singleton, you know, for all the success he's had, Middle linebacker is not a position that pays a lot of money in the modern game, only made $3 million over the last four years. And I know for a, you know, a normal everyday person, $3 million is obviously an astronomical amount of money. But when you talk about the NFL, $3 million is, is not terribly a lot, relatively speaking. The $9 million on his contract that's guaranteed should mean that he never has to work another day in his life unless he wants to and he could potentially even take care, obviously, of of members of his family, friends, whoever he wants to. That is suddenly generational money. So congratulations to both of them. Well-deserved. We know how hard Alex Singleton worked. We know how hard David Onyemata worked for this. Good for them.
2: We've touched on the story of Onyemata a couple times here and how he started at the University of Manitoba. I saw this on Twitter, so this is an original thought, and I don't remember who did it, so I can't credit them, but I thought it was... It was a great comment that I saw. Anya Maga showed up at Brian Doby's door because a friend told him he should play football. That has to be the greatest friend in the history of friends. Like I hope <laughs> he's getting some kickbacks here because that guy changed Anya Maga's life in a way that that very few people can ever do. I mean, he is he is living lavishly. He's sacking Tom Braggie. He is making us all very proud the ones of us who watched him in the Canada West and for Singleton. I hope this deal is an indication that he's finally going to get the respect he deserves in the NFL. Even with that contract where he signed with Denver last year, he didn't start out as a starter, right? They didn't really want him on the field. And then he sees that job after a couple of weeks and again, put up another hundred tackle season as he has throughout his NFL career. He deserves it. He's one of the more underrated players in the NFL, and finally to see him get significant guaranteed money is very heartening.
1: You probably read that fact on Three Down Nation, JC, and just realized it now.
2: <laughs> well, I, I I knew the fact, but I saw the comment that it was the best friend ever. Someone else well, did that. I don't, I'm not joke stealing here. I'm not well, joke and stealing.
0: And, and it's a breaking news. Do you guys want to know the name of that friend? John. Ooh, what was it? The- <laughs> I'm kidding, you, you, but I you want, you want You want the kickbacks, right? <laughs> I want that. I, at the very least, I feel like if I was the friend, I'd be entitled to a flight out to Atlanta for a game with the VIP treatment. So uh, I'll put that out there in the universe. But no, just to be clear, I am joking. I'm not that friend. I wish I was.
1: Carter Chow, for the record, was on Yemen Asian and still is, and he's part of the the sports agency with Don Yee that represents Tom Brady, and I think that's what really helped put anyamata on the map. And I say that because we're going through a situation that a lot of people are looking at in the NFL right now: Lamar Jackson without an agent, and I don't think it's going to work out as well for him as it could have if he had an agent. So Carter Chow being tied to Anymata really gave Anymata some name power because Chow was starting to tell teams how good. That he was so I think that boosted his draft stock in and of itself. Of course, you have to have the measurables and he absolutely had a ultra athletic testing day there at the University of Manitoba where a bunch of NFL teams showed up and it's not like these personnel evaluators or talent evaluators are clamoring no offense Hodge to come up to Winnipeg in the winter <laughs> to watch an athlete but he was that good to draw a bunch of NFL scouts there and then get taken, I believe it was, in the fourth round of the NFL draft. Is that right, fellas, fourth round?
0: Yes, and the Saints traded up to take him.
1: Yeah, I think they traded two fifth-rounders to, to get him Two fifths
0: to get it, and yeah. And, and by the way, in other news, ESPN reported today that the Saints have signed Canadian defensive lineman Nathan Shepard. So obviously, the Saints losing on Yamada in free agency, they thought, we need to go find another Canadian defensive tackle I love, by the way, that the Saints appear more committed to starting a defensive tackle, who's Canadian, than some CFL teams do. And there's no <laughs> ratio down there, boys.
1: <laughs> Hodge, your much-anticipated first mock draft is out ahead of the upcoming CFL Combine in Edmonton. You've got Peterborough native Jared Wayne going first overall to the Ottawa Red Blacks out of the University of Pittsburgh. Why do you have Wayne going number one?
0: Well, I've got Wayne there because I don't think that he has a great chance of getting drafted. This year's NFL draft is loaded at the receiver position. That's not a slight against him. He was a second team all ACC selection this past year, had almost a thousand yards in what was a pretty run heavy attack at Pitt. That being said. Jared Wayne, I don't think is a burner. I don't think he's a guy who's going to run a four, four. He's six, three, 200 pounds. I think he's probably going to run in the four sixes, which is generally not where NFL teams want to see prospects run. I'd also quickly point out that some incredibly impressive NFL receivers in the modern and historic game ran around there. And a lot of great CFL receivers have ran along there. I think if I remember correctly, a Darius Bowman, who could very well end up in the, in the Hall of Fame, ran like a four, seven, five back in the day so to me jared wayne depending on his nfl interest will be a candidate for that first overall pick we know that ottawa needs to upgrade their receiving core i don't care if you're talking canadian or americans i think they need to get more explosive in that offense to support jeremiah masoli so to me that is my projected pick at the moment, but obviously, boys, this can all change. Jared Wayne is going to be participating in Pitts Pro Day on March 29th. And if he proves me wrong and goes out runs like a 4 3 8, then I think the chances of him going first overall in the CFL draft plummet to basically zero. That being said, I will say, give myself a little bit of credit, in my first mock draft last season, of the nine players I mocked in the first round of the draft, five got taken in the first round, three others fell to the top half of the second round of the draft. So things change at the Combine. They change with NFL Pro Days. They change with all kinds of stuff. But last year, I got five out of the nine right, at least in the first round, and I'm hoping to improve upon that this year. Come on, Hodge.
2: Not not good enough. We need we need all nine to be accurate. Come on. <laughs> well, I'll That's say this the
0: expecta- expectations of
2: perfection here, Hodge.
0: Well the, the mock, I'll say this. If if you ever want to feel stupid, make a mock draft because you'll get it just the way you want it, you get it perfect, and then you come back to it the next day and you look at it and you're like, This is the worst thing I've ever seen. And you change everything, and then you come back the day after and you change it back to the way you had it. Like it is a very Very difficult exercise, one that is often done in futility, I will add. It's fun, but man, it's challenging, and I'm hoping that I'm able to improve my accuracy this year and then also improve my accuracy, obviously, on the next edition of my mock draft, which I anticipate will be out sometime between the Combine and the draft on May 2nd.
1: That's exactly why, Hodge. I am happy that you do the mock drafts now because (laughs) I feel like there is so much wasted time that goes along with it battling smoke screens behind the scenes of people trying to get you to put guys in the first round that they really don't even think have a chance to go there. And I think if memory serves, and I have forgot much of this, which I actually am kind of happy about, the best year that I ever had in the first round, I think, was six out of nine. And I remember hitting Evan Johnson to the Ottawa Red Blacks. And apparently, Marcel Desjardins got upset with all of his personnel staff there saying, How the heck did Dunk know this in his mock draft? You still got the guy. So why does it matter? But it is extremely hard. And for people that continuously ask Hodge where the mock is, part of the reason why it doesn't come out super early is because there's a lot that goes into it. And he's trying to be as accurate as possible with all these people trying to get him to think in different ways about stuff that's actually not going to happen and divert his attention elsewhere. But this is the truest mock draft of them all through and through, not just the first round, but overall, Hodge usually has guys in the right ranges, except for the absolute surprises that some scouts like to keep ultra secret. Like Cole Nelson? We talk about Cole Nelson now? <laughs> yes. well,
0: there, there don't are also... remind
2: me about Cole Nelson. I don't remind the Edmonton about Cole Nelson. They don't want to be reminding either. Or Brock Sunderland.
0: Yeah, there, there are also times where teams are so completely off the board. But And, and I will also say, and this is in my mock drafts, I, it is informed speculation. I am trying to be accurate with predictions. But at the same time, I do like throwing my own analysis in there. And there have been times where if teams took, not not all the time, I'm off base sometimes full admission on my part of that, but there are times we're looking back. at some of my previous mock drafts. Teams would have been smarter to go with my selection than the guy they ended up picking. That's no the way time. it goes. <laughs> it's no time
2: for a moment. <laughs> go ahead, JC. Before we move on, I do, I do think we need to speak a little bit about Jerry Wayne. Cause we made this all about Hodge and not about the guy. He's got number one overall. And I will say if it were to take place that he goes direct to the CFL, He would be an impact player right off the bat. I really believe that. He's an excellent route runner. He's extremely physical across the middle in my mind. The son of a former CFL linebacker. He would be an excellent addition to any team. And I bet Ottawa's hoping you're right, Hodge, and that he's there.
0: Well, and I'll also say this. I've talked to individuals around the league who are convinced that Jared Wayne will be a career NFLer. I've also talked to people who think he's going to be in the CFL next year. So... There's 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 a debate amongst uh, some of those folks, some of whom, as Dunk said, could be purposely trying to mislead me. So it's a it's a it's a tough exercise, but it's a fun one as much as I uh, as, as as much as it drives me crazy. Sometimes it is fun. Hodges heritage moment on this day in 1965, nine play representatives from each of the league's nine teams flew to Toronto to meet with John Agro, who became the first legal counsel for the CFL Players Association. The CFLPA tweeted about it today. Following a prompt from the CFL Reddit Twitter page, you posted a screenshot of an article from the Hamilton Spectator dating all the way back to this day. Almost, what is that, boys? Is that 70, 60 years ago? My goodness, long time. Dunk, what does the CFLPA mean to players in this league?
1: It's come a long way, especially in recent years under the guidance of President Solomon Elamimian, and it means that players more and more are getting fair contracts and also a fair split of the revenue. That was a major part of the last deal was the revenue sharing with the players. And I hope that the players can secure more of that in the future as the league hopefully gets itself in a position where it's more stable financially. I think Pierre-Carlo Pellado will help do that. One interesting note, Sportsnet anchor Carly Agro is the proud granddaughter of John Agro who got this whole thing started. So I think the players need to know this history because it's important and it helps them now in the modern day.
2: Yeah, it's absolutely vital. And you look at some of these upstart leagues south of the border trying to unionize now in the early days. The CFL has been at it for 60 years. It's why our players, our game is a much stabler place than anything else. It's because the union plays such a vital role in that dynamic.
1: Let's go to the three-minute drill. A CFL fan used artificial intelligence to create art depicting all nine teams. Hodge, which image was your favorite?
0: Mine's Ottawa's, but maybe I'm biased because Ottawa's looked strangely like me. It really did. And if you haven't seen it, there have been multiple memes Made about me and the Ottawa Red Blacks Lumberjack, which I think, by the way, is fantastic. I'm flattered. Paul McCallum told the First and Now podcast that he temporarily unretired to join the Lions in 2016 following a chance meeting with personnel man Neil McAvoy after having a couple of drinks at a late season Riders game. How funny is that?
2: I think it was a great story. And those drinks, of course, were with the Saskatchewan Premier at the time. I, that sort of got glossed over in the hey, story, but that's who Brad, he was drinking
0: with. Brad Wall follows me on Twitter, which is maybe, <laughs> my, maybe my proudest thing that I've accomplished on social media.
2: The other funny aspect of this, of course, Paul McCallum admits he had not kicked in a year before getting that final contract with the Lions. He went four for four the very next week. Henry Burris is no longer with the Jacksonville Jaguars following a one-year stint as the team's offensive quality control coach. Do you think he'll get another NFL gig?
1: It's possible. I mean, he got that gig after he had accepted his job with the BC Lions. So I think some things can happen here, even though people might feel like it's a little late in the process. He was at the NFL Combine doing some networking, and I think something could come out of that for Smiling Hank. A Winnipeg Restore location puts Saskatchewan Rough Riders gloves on sale for $1, just a loony if they still exist, with a sign that read, Ugly Gloves. Would you pay $1 or a loony for Riders gloves?
0: Of course I would. Yeah, I I like the Riders look. And at the very least, I could turn around and flip them to Rider fans for a large profit. (laughs) A dollar? you kidding me? The Argos added Canadian receiver David Ungerer III, who recently spent time with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Is that a good fit?
2: A depth addition, particularly if Toronto opts to start two Canadian receivers at any point next season. They've got Curly Gittens Jr. He's a lock. Jean Preset's going to have to get an opportunity at some point. Unger can be a depth piece in behind those two guys. Former CFL head coach Jamie Elizondo has been demoted by the XFL's San Antonio Brahmas, moving from offensive coordinator to receivers coach.
1: That must sting, right? Ooh, it has to. It's not been a good string recently for Elizondo in the XFL or the CFL, considering his season at the helm of the Edmonton football team there are probably some people in the cfl saying i told you so elizondo had a bit of a reputation for having a massive ego for what he had done in ottawa and i think turned off a lot of people which is why it might be hard for him to get back in the cfl in the story you broke hodge the los angeles rams tendered the contract of canadian defensive lineman michael hoyt keeping him with the team through 2023 is that a smart move
0: it is he was undrafted in 2020 spent a couple years well one year on the pr one year in a depth role he had four and a half sacks last year boys this guy is becoming a bona fide starter they've invested in him and it's time for him to get a chance to be a full-time starter in my view in 2023 the bc lions have created a new ticket program to help fans on vancouver island and the bc interior get to games this season can that help fill bc place
2: It absolutely can. We saw it work during their playoff game last year. They bust people in from all over. It was a fantastic atmosphere. This is going to make it so that can be the case week after week. I love this move by the Lions and owner Amar Doman. Edmonton Oilers assistant GM Bill Scott, the son of longtime sports agent Gil Scott, used to be a water boy for the
1: Toronto Argonauts. Did you know that, Dunk? I did. And it's a really cool CFL connection that ties in so many things at some points. And JC, you did a great article around the Super Bowl that had Canadian connections to the Super Bowl. I feel like you can look a lot of things at a lot of things with CFL ties. And this is just one of them. Of course, the Oilers are hoping to win a Grey Cup with Connor McDavid. But until he gets that title, I don't think we can put him in the realm of an athlete like a Doug Flutie in the CFL. Former CFL QB Dakota Prukop officially signed with the New Jersey Generals of the USFL after choosing not to sign back with Winnipeg following the 2022 season. Is that an ideal situation for him?
0: Well, I've tentatively booked an interview with Prukop about his decision to sign in the USFL, so I'm hoping to get the word right from the horse's mouth. But to me, this is about trying to get a starting opportunity. He was the third stringer, short yardage QB in Winnipeg this past year. I think at the age of 29, he's looking to be a starter somewhere. So if he's able to do that in the USFL, good for him. His head coach, by the way, will be Mike Riley. Not to be confused with the former quarterback out in Edmonton and BC, but Mike Riley, the head coach, who won two great cups with Winnipeg in 1988 and 1990. Last one, legendary Montrealowitz. defensive lineman Glenn Weir has passed away at the age of 71. The native of London, Ontario, played 13 seasons with the Alouettes and Concords, was named a five-time All-Star, and was inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame in 2009. Three Down Nation extended sincerest condolences to the family members and friends of Weir during this difficult time. We thank you as always for listening to the Three Down Nation podcast. Next week, the three of us are going to be at the Combine in Edmonton. Our podcast schedule is TBD, but do expect the show at some point while we are in Edmonton. Checking out all the latest with the prospects ahead of the 2023 CFL Draft.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger,
0: McNuggets, or Mc Crispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.